0: If you want to win a free voucher to download Final Draft screenwriting software, all you have to do is follow Jog Road Productions and Road to Cinema on all four platforms of social media. That's right. Follow us on Twitter, at Jog Road. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Jog Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Jog Road Productions, and follow us on Instagram, instagram.com slash Jog Productions. By following us on all four platforms of social media, you'll be entered into a contest to win a free download of the Final Draft screenwriting software brought to you by Road to Cinema and our friends at Final Draft. Welcome to episode number 34 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring director Jeremy Workman of the new documentary Magical Universe, which is now available on special edition DVD as well as on demand on iTunes. Amazon, Netflix, and many other VOD platforms. Filmed over the course of a decade, Magical Universe tells the story of outsider artist Al Carby, an 88-year-old recluse who spends his days alone in a massive house in Maine creating art, mostly featuring Barbie dolls and elaborate dioramas. The documentary profiles Carby's amazing body of work and his relentlessly creative lifestyle. Carby's story is explored through the prism of his unlikely friendship with New York filmmaker and Road to Cinema guest Jeremy Workman, who unexpectedly becomes Carby's closest friend and only link to the outside world. We'll discuss Jeremy's history as a trailer editor, as well as his company, Wheelhouse Creative, which makes trailers, promotional videos, and even documentaries for major networks like ESPN. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at jogroad, like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash jogroad, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Productions, and now you can also follow us on Instagram, instagram.com slash jogroadproductions. And now we join director Jeremy Workman as he discusses his early career editing trailers and making his very first film who is henry Jaglum? Um, as we were talking before we started recording
1: my my father is a filmmaker he's a he's a documentary filmmaker he's chuck workman and I, so i grew up in la and i grew up in this sort of world of making documentaries and sort of living seeing that you know within the house and watching him make documentaries so i was really young when I was exposed to the documentaries from him, Um, and being in Los Angeles, working in documentaries is, is really, I mean, that's very, a different kind of, you know, lifestyle of the industry than most people are used to in L.A. I now live in New York, and the documentary community is like so huge and vital and important, here, it's a totally different it's scene. kind of on the
0: fringes a little oh, bit. Oh, completely. Or, yeah. So
1: here I was growing up, and I was interested in film from a very early age. I grew up with my friend, who I'm actually staying with here, and we're doing the interview here, who is now a big um, camera operator. So we grew up together, and I was exposed um, while growing up to this kind of world of documentary. He made a big... Um, he was making some big docs during the 80s and 90s when I was growing up. Um, he did one on... Andy Warhol called Superstar, which is awesome. Um, I was really young on it, but I helped out. I began editing that, um, help, helping in the editing, assistant editing, getting footage, you know, helping him in, in the finding materials, logging footage. I was probably, I don't know, 15. Um, and then he started making a documentary on the beat generation that's called the source Um, That's also an awesome documentary. Um, And that was kind of like right when I was in college, or about to go to college. Um, So I was really kind of on this kind of editing documentary path. I feel like I've had an interesting career already, and I was on this sort of documentary editing path from a very early age. Um, So when... I was in college, me and Henry Alex Rubin connected, and we started making a documentary on Henry Jaglum, and that became Who is Henry Jaglum? And that was sort of my first film out of the gate. Um, you know, and we, we threw a lot into it, and we really kind of, like, I, I think I, if I remember, I took a lot of money that was set aside for my last year of college, and I graduated early yeah. so that I could get that money and use it, and throw it into this movie, so we kind of self-financed it. We found a some money, and we kept on making it with Jaglam. We got to know Henry Jaglam. He was such a sort of a divisive or person. What kind was of your
0: first uh, interaction yeah. with Jaglam? The,
1: the first interaction I thought was was so indicative of everything that the documentary became, and also about Henry Jaglam. Like there, you might have listeners that listen to this. They're like, "Who's this guy?" Okay. And he's this like really strange, unique, indefatigable you know, independent voice. And he makes these very divisive movies that are improv. Um, I know he was on your podcast and he was great in your podcast. Um, He's a great storyteller. He has a great history. He worked on Easy Rider. He was um, friends with Orson Welles. He makes movie after movie. So what was incredible was when we met him when we were in college, he took a liking to, to both of us. And he said, why don't, you know, he makes these movies that, that blur the line between reality and fiction, and he does a lot of improv. So he said, I got an idea. Why don't you guys show up on set, and you guys will play film students, because you guys are young film students, and you'll be actors in, in my movie. Yeah. And this was a movie called Last Summer in the Hamptons, which actually did pretty well it was like a pretty you know substantial movie for him yeah it had um, a big cast in had It had a great martha cast Clinton martha plimpton was uh, in it melissa leo yeah. um brooke smith the playwright john robin bates i mean it was like a a big movie for him it had this like kind of checkoff vibe and it was actually pretty good so we vivica linforce who was this old hollywood kind of legend that used to be don siegel's wife she was in it um so we were invited to be actors in this movie. Yeah. So we're like college kids who are film students. We're thrilled. Oh, my God, this is so amazing. We're going to be actors in a movie. And guess what? We're going to be playing ourselves and running <laughs> around with a camera. He even was like, yeah, in the scenes, I want you guys with your video cameras because that you're going to be playing yourselves, filming all these amazing people. It was like an actor family. And there was yeah. going to be a, these yeah, film students running around filming. We get on set. We show up that day and we discover that we were two of maybe ten film students that were going to be in the movie. Playing film students. Yes. So that was a little bit of a shock. We we thought we were the only two. (laughs) Turns out there's like ten. There might have been twelve. Then we discover that we're actually not going to be actors. We're going to be PAs. Ah. And what was revealed eventually was that, it was all this sort of elaborate ruse to get um, free PAs. Mm. And instead of being actors on, on the shoot, we were essentially free PAs. And, I mean, it is funny. I mean, it, it's it's an incredibly, incredible bold move. If you go on my IMDb, it yeah, actually it says, says, I'm filming. an actor yeah. in this movie. But in reality, I was a PA, and he had tricked us. So we were already on set with our cameras, and we were sort of so in shock by this that we just started filming and filming and filming, and that evolved into this what documentary. What kind of cameras
0: were you using at the
1: time? I think at the time it was, you know, right coming out of digital... or coming out of like analog into digital so this was like probably when high eight was moving into digital so this was you know 90s mid 90s and when high eight was sort of a format that then went into digital um so that was kind of my first taste and then we worked on that movie for a while and we we tried to really convey the style of who this guy was and really kind of rapid fire editing and just kind of threw a lot of kind of cool filmmaking at it and the movie did really well it it, um you know played it premiered um at a lot of big festivals it won a lot of awards it played on pov it sold to all these channels and you know next thing you know it's premiering on pbs and getting getting you know talked about in big newspapers and i'm like oh okay this documentary thing is pretty easy (laughs) so uh yeah so that was sort of my first out of the gate but at that point you know and this kind of gets into a whole like my kind of uh, my career path, which yeah. is I then was like okay because we I, we had just edited this documentary and I had this experience of editing from a very early age through my father so I was twenty I was like t- early 20s and I was like, wow I, you know people people were telling me I was a really good editor um, and i I really sort of I was ten years ahead of a lot of people that had Um, edited major stuff you know Um, I was in my early 20s and I actually was I had a lot of editing experience so I was sort of recruited at around 22-ish to edit movie trailers Um, and then I started editing movie trailers Hollywood movie trailers um, and started doing that by the time I was in my mid twenties, I had already worked on some pretty big trailers. Um, I worked at a kind of a um, one of the top trailer vendors in um, in New York. Yeah. Um, there's not many in New York, but there's a really good one. Most of the trailer companies are in L.A.
0: Yeah, I talked to uh, Jeff Canoe. Jeff canoe
1: So Jeff Canu is a really interesting guy, and um, you know, so he. Uh, he and his brother had a, he was a trail, he was a trailer editor in the seventies and eighties and did some big trailers like ordinary people and the graduate, yeah, huge trailers, you know, and then he, he eventually went from trailer editing to editing some pretty significant eighties comedies, you know, um, say what you want about Revenge of the Nerds, but it's pretty much an 80s comedy classic. Yeah, that was a big...
0: I think he directed that, too. He directed that, yeah. yeah.
1: So he directed that. He directed, you know, Tough Guys with uh, Kirk Douglas, and he did a few others. Um, So he was a neat guy. He and his brother started this company that I eventually worked at. Jeff and Gary Canoe, they had a company called the Canoe Company. That evolved into a company called Geronimo and that's where I eventually got my start editing trailers. Yeah. So here I was, I was a twenty five year old guy. I was put on movies like um a lot of movies in those Miramax Harvey Weinstein like heyday, mm. you know, um uh the scream franchise were they a client at the company? yes, they were okay. life is beautiful, Shakespeare in love um you know, I did a lot of those campaigns. It was kind of during harvey weinstein's um and Miramax's kind of you know great great years, yeah. so I remember I was you know again, I was really young, but i was i, I remember that year where like Shakespeare in Love won the Oscar in an upset Roberto Benini won the actor in an upset. And Miramax was like, you know, sky high. And I had worked on a lot of those trailers. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I worked on a lot of other big trailers. You know, I worked on the campaign of Matrix and, you know, Tim Burton movies and Scorsese movies. And just a lot of like, you know, Robert Rodriguez projects and just big stuff. Um, so that was really a, a, a really great experience um, and Definitely something that I learned so much. I learned so much about the industry and filmmaking. And, you know, like I'm sure Jeff Canoe probably talked about the same thing. Yeah.
0: He also said a lot about how at that time trailers were really uh, in the 60s, 70s, really developing into something different. So when you were working on trailers, how were they evolving?
1: Trailers had really reached this. They had sort of climaxed into this style that is now the style for movie trailers. And that was, I would say... You know, that was happening in the early 90s, and I would say there was, you know, there were some key trailers in the early 90s and mid-90s that were, you know, for example, uh, the 7 trailer, the David Fincher 7 trailer, you know, that was done at a Hollywood vendor, and if you watched it now, it looks very much like a trailer that is... Um, that would play this weekend at the theater. You know, the the 70s and 80s, there was definitely an evolution of trailers. Those were more, many times there was a lot of like, they were scene snippets, you know, that were sort of strung together and sometimes there would be graphic and cards yeah. and those kind of things. In the 90s, trailers evolved into what they are now, which is this kind of self-contained two minutes, three-act structure, story, character, all sort of jammed in there. So it, it was, you know, and then going into the 2000s, trailers sort of developed an additional style and there was, you know, kind of legendary trailers like, uh, you know, Tomb Raider or movies of, uh, Tony Scott that, where the trailer style became really, um, impactful and a, a different sort of evolved into a different style. And that, um. Very much became the norm so that now when you go to the theater and you see some big trailer, um, that's some hot trailer now, you know, um, whether it's a Christopher Nolan movie or whatever, that is sort of coming out of the 90s, two thousand style. Yeah. So I was sort of right in the middle of that and I had done and was very young. I was a good 10 years younger than most of the editors that were doing – were around. So that was like really um, – it was a weird experience, but great.
0: Yeah. Were you working directly with the clients? Uh, yeah, I well?
1: mean, you'd work – the way that trailer vendors work is that um, it's such a weird niche and it's so specific that they – the studios don't have the, those kind of um, editors. So they sort of farm out these jobs to a, maybe there's 15 to 20, 25 different companies that all have about you know, 8, 10 editors or less. Like the company I worked, we had four editors, You know, and you would just get a movie in and you'd hear this movie, oh, The Matrix. Oh, that's going to be some crappy sci-fi movie. And then you'd watch it and be like, oh, my God. You know, it's funny because my my father also talked – he he also was a trailer editor. So we sort of followed this similar trajectory in a way. And he had this really also awesome trailer experience when he was younger. And he actually did the Star Wars trailer. Really? Yeah. Um, He – Uh, Lucas and company were having trouble with their trailer. This is 1976 and he, or 77, whatever it was, right? And he, my father was an editor and was known as this kind of indie guy making docs, shooting a lot of featurettes and they brought him that trailer, Star Wars, and he saw Rough Cut and then made the trailer, if you watch that trailer now, yeah, it's pretty dated. Like I said, it didn't really get into that kind of style of movie trailers that's prevalent now. So it feels more like, okay, it's a clip. It's a well-composed kind of clip reel, you know. Yeah. But he and I share this very uh, similar experience where he it was this, you know, in the 70s, and they hand him this movie Star Wars. In fact, I think they, they, he uh, had to see it at a screening room because it was pre-videotaped. And, uh, being his mind just being blown, like, oh my God, this is, you know, the future of movies and, and not really ready to, for that. And I had also a very similar experience with the movie, the matrix where I was, I, like I, you know, it's one of those things. And I'm not saying I'm like, you know, the matrix is the greatest movie of the last 30 or 40 years. I'm not saying that at all. Um, in fact, these days it, it feels a little dated and it's sort of lost a little of its luster, but I do remember like where I was when I watched when I put that tape in. Um, I was going to be working on it. Most of the effects were not done. It was a lot of green screen. There was a lot of missing effect cards. You, you were ed- editing
0: the trailer while it was still sort of Yes, rough.
1: yes. And I was, um, in, in full disclosure, I did not edit the, the trailer. The trailer was edited by this amazing editor named Phil Decord. But I worked on it with him, and I edited a lot of the TV campaign on The Matrix. Yeah. Um, and... You know, I remember when it came in and we're all just sort of sitting there watching it. And, you know, it was definitely one of those moments, like my dad used to say when he saw Star Wars, where it was just like I couldn't I couldn't wrap my head around what I had just seen. Um, it was so different. And and I think our expectations were so low with that movie because we were kind of um, expecting it to be some like crappy, you know. Yeah. Keanu Reeves sci-fi so What movie. do you feel
0: is sort of like the first step for you when you go in to make a trailer? Yeah. Are you outlining sort of story points in the movie or...
1: So just just to jump to my trailer work now. Oh yeah. Yeah which yeah. is is definitely you know relevant for that is after doing all this studio work I kind of got a little burned out. Um, You know trailer editors have have a high rate of burnout.
0: And you were working for someone else at this time. Yeah, yeah and I
1: was working on these very intense campaigns that you know Harvey Weinstein was involved in and um, you know, often I had people sitting behind me. And it was very, very intense. Um, so and,
0: you always sort of worked with somebody over the shoulder. Not always. Way, but, but-,
1: but many times, um, it's sort of like the bigger the director is, the more power they have in the marketing of their movies. So if he has time, you know, Michael Mann or David Fincher or Wes Anderson is going to go in the edit room and work on the trailer if they have time. Not always the case, but the bigger the director is, the more they're involved in the marketing. So I, um, so it it has like a, it's like got like a very high turnover. It's got a high, um, rate of, of people losing, you know, not being able to sustain that kind of work. You know, there's not, there's career trailer guys, but there's a real high degree of, like, people could get burned out on it. Yes. So I was continually making my own movies all this time. I was still making documentaries. I was still doing all this stuff. And then I sort of, like, okay, I had enough with the studio world. It sort of peaked, it, you know. can I'm not even – I wasn't even 30 years old. And I then decided to leave that world and then go directly into independent movies and doing trailers for indie movies, which is and I started a company in New York City called Wheelhouse, and now we focus primarily on indie movies, art house, documentary, foreign films, you know, all the movies that I gravitated to as a viewer. Um, so it became a different experience. You know, if you're working on a big campaign of like X-Men, you're looking at a lot of like testing and focus groups, and it's a lot of following what's testing well, and you're listening to the studio give very specific, do this, do this, don't do this. In my world now, it's very different because I kind of run my own shop and it's only indie movies and everybody sort of comes to us and they know what I'm about and that gives me more autonomy to really um, have a real strong say in how these movies go are marketed. Yeah. So to answer your question, what do I do? A movie comes in. Um, well, again, I'm working in indie movies. They're already a tough sell. They're already hard. What do you do? How do you get people? To Most go of them see- that you
0: get, do they already have distribution, or are some of them looking for distribution as well? In
1: um, in in the in the earlier years when when I was doing only indie movies, they only had distribution. So it would be a movie you know movies that got picked up at a Sundance or or Toronto Film Festival or some you know, kind of cool, like an Ed Burns movie. You know, they were the cool indie movies that had distribution. Nowadays, everything's become more and more fractured in distribution, particularly with independent films. And the studios are sort of holding on to this kind of old model. But as you know, I mean, this I'm not saying anything new. Everything's gotten fractured. So the independent world is completely fractured. And, you know, we could even talk about this with my newest film. But you, it is... Now, there's VOD, there's self-distribution self-distribu- models, there's iTunes, there's digital, there's uh, theatrical, there's hybrid theatrical, there's all these different ways now to release your film, and as a result of that, the people that come to me now sometimes don't even have distribution, and it's all a different model now, um, and each one is different. I just did a trailer for a documentary that is premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival, Damn, I think it's this
0: weekend,
1: next week. Yeah, I think that's coming up soon. Yeah, it yeah. <laughs> maybe Wow, already, it could have even been last maybe night. It already happened. <laughs> it could have been last night. It's um the documentary on Saturday Night Live. It's called Live from New York.
0: Okay, okay. that's and, not the James Franco one, right? Or that's a different. No, that okay. is a different one. This is more a you know
1: a an official kind of lovely coffee table documentary Made about in
0: collaboration with yes. Broadway Video or Lauren yes, Michael's yes, yes, and yeah. Lauren
1: Michaels is involved, and they got. Frickin' everybody and everybody's in it. So this is a documentary on Saturday Night Live. Well, in the in years ago, like not even that many years ago, 5 years ago, a documentary like that would be, you know, picked up by Fox Searchlight or Focus or whatever and go to a thousand screens. Now that's totally different. That movie is being self-distributed by the producers. They're bypassing all the distribution and they come to me directly. So it's um sometimes they know what how the market is going to be and sometimes they don't you know and it all depends so I would say everything has really be- become different now um, other movies come to me they know exactly what they want where, what they're doing I admit, we've been working for weeks on this movie Ex Machina, which came out last night. Uh, yesterday, yeah. it's this really cool robot movie. Got really good reviews. It's incredible. Saw, yeah. yeah,
0: Oscar Isaac is Oscar uh, Isaac's yeah. in
1: it, and uh, it's directed by Alex Garland, who wrote The Beach and wrote a lot of Danny Boyle movies. So we've been working on that for weeks and weeks, doing all kinds of different things on it, not just trailer stuff, but just other pieces, do you do TV ads as well. We do it. Right? Yes, sort of we do. In okay. Yeah, they're LinkedIn. Usually, it's different. A lot of times. Uh, different vendors work on different things. With XMOC, you know, we even created a a ton of, you know, featurettes that are, you know, people might be like, oh, like a featurette, like a DVD extra. Yes, but we're making them a lot cooler than that, you know, and there's something that play on iTunes and there are two and a half minutes and it's a profile of the special effects and it's all done in a really cool way. So, like, that movie, they know exactly what they want, and they have a very specific audience. And other movies that come to us um, are more art house. Some, uh, we do a lot of foreign films. You know, we work on Amor. You know, yeah, Michael it's Haneke, Oscar, which best won foreign the Oscar. Language, yeah, film. what do you do with that? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, at one point I had counted, I had worked on, I had done the trailers for six movies that won Best Foreign Film Oscar. So, you know, it's a it's an odd trajectory for somebody who's an editor, a trailer editor. You know, I had started in my twenties working on some of the biggest movies there are, movies that would win Best Picture Oscars, and now here I am, do, still doing this years later, and working on movies that are the art house movies or the foreign film movies that are up for Best Documentary or Best Foreign Film. Yeah, which again is more in. Um, more in sync with what I'm interested in. Um, but, like, you know, a movie like A Separation comes in. I don't know if you know that one. Yeah, that, that was, also
0: won a couple years ago. Too, best best Iranian foreign, foreign film, film, an Iranian yeah. movie.
1: So it's an Iranian movie about um, a divorce, essentially. And there's also some intrigue going on where somebody gets hurt and there might, you know, who's at fault. So you have an Iranian movie, right, which is already a tough sell. It's subtitles. It's about divorce. It's a domestic story. I mean, how the hell do you make a trailer of that? You know, it's one thing when you have, you know, some awesome Marvel Comics movie, and it's like there's amazing scenes and amazing shots and just amazing stuff, and they're throwing so much at it. But now it's a whole different thing and a whole different kind of muscle and challenge when an Iranian movie comes in, and I'm trying to get you to see this movie... And not trying to get, not grandma, I'm trying to get you to see this movie. Like yeah, how, People how, outside of the box of people who would normally see something like that. How do you do that? Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, so it's like, yeah, okay, maybe grandma's going to go see it because she, she goes to the new art or she likes Lincoln Center. But how do I get, how do we get younger people that are more influential or more interested in art films? How do you get them to those movies? And that's a constant. Challenge now of, of the work that we do. Um, I was really proud. You know, people talk about trailer. I was talking about. Oh, I was most proud of like what we worked on. And, yeah. You know, usually it's something like, oh, you know, when we did Fast Five, or we were really we, we got 120 million dollars that weekend. <laughs> well, the budgets, the marketing budgets are so insane. You know, of course, a movie like that should make 100 million dollars opening weekend. Now, try to try to tell me how to market when it's like some you know, foreign film that we're trying to get to kind of break out in a, in a different way, you know, so um, a couple of years ago, I did the trailer to the great beauty
0: yeah.
1: is it an Italian movie that also won best foreign film, you know, and that be- is, is a, just a whole nother sort of ball of wax of how do you get people excited about this stuff? Um, so really looking at it and looking at it closely and trying to, subvert the audience so that they don't think they're just going to be watching some boring art house yeah. movie. How
0: important is music to interlace in there? So it's Both sort of really important. Do you, do you ever create your own music? We to do. It?
1: We do. We do all kinds of stuff. Essentially the, my approach that we're doing now, and again, you know, just to, to reiterate, we're only working on indies. This has been a choice. We don't work on studio, but we, we don't even, we don't even want to. Um, but our approach is, well, Jeremy used to cut a lot of big studio projects and big studio trailers. Why don't we bring that style to indie movies? And that's really what we do. Um, and that, if anything, is in a nutshell what we what we do. Yeah. So we do the same thing that they're going to do for um, you know a big for uh, you know a big Hollywood movie. You know, yeah. if it's a big studio movie, Argo, I'm going to do the same kind of stuff in the trailer for this movie that came out that's a some indie movie that also has you know is sort of similar something like that you know yeah. so yeah we um, we're very uh, very aware of using music and cutting music and making the trailers really stand out in a way that audiences really react to um because it's tough you know i we always talk about at my company that it's you're really in the trenches. You're really it's it's like roll up your sleeve. How are we going to get people to to see documentaries? We do a lot of trailers for documentaries. A lot of them are great, you know, big docs. But still, I mean the 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 it's so low the viewership and uh, it's different. You know, people aren't going lining up to the uh, theaters to go yeah. see a doc. Well, it's
0: something that's on HBO. It's sort of more accessible. But the problem is getting to see those in theaters. Yes. People just won't yes have that initiative to sort of go out when right. sort of Netflix right HBO and
1: this echoes some of the things that we've already touched on a little bit yeah. where you know the distribution models are so fractured and when i was growing up with my dad Chuck workman making docs in the in when i was growing up it was a you would the docs would go to the theater and they would be up on against the same movies that had stars in them and it was very difficult and Docs really had a lull in the 80s and 90s. I mean, everybody talks about this, that they weren't finding audiences and these amazing movies that were, you know, these amazing documentaries, whether it's Errol Morris or whomever, they weren't finding their audiences at the time and it really, it took that change of model in the early 2000s for Docs to finally break out a little bit and now documentaries rarely do well in theater. I just made a documentary that at some point we'll talk about, yeah. but uh, uh, <laughs> it it you know it was released in theaters by IFC Films, um, which was a huge, huge quote unquote victory. It was a huge coup. I you know my last documentary gets a theatrical release. Who yeah. is <laughs> <there's> a dog? <laughs> uh, uh, that's my friend's doc uh-huh. so um it's a huge coup to get yeah. have your documentary released in theaters yet still even that it's there the audience isn't there you know people now thankfully are finding documentaries on VOD and iTunes and Netflix and what people what what distributors are discovering is that there is a healthy interest in docs huge but it's very confined to people at home people like to watch documentaries at home yeah people don't necessarily like to go to the theaters to watch docu- documentaries i think they don't see them as a theatrical experience i think so and i think there's a lot of debate that i'm sure everybody reads about about like netflix and how is it good for 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 filmmaking today and if you're a filmmaker is netflix a good thing and um you know i'm looking forward and and i we you know again we'll we could we could get into oh, yeah, it we'll but jump right in. yeah my documentary is <laughs> coming out on netflix on may 12th and yeah. it's coming on home video on may 12th so i'm i'm sort of doing another round of publicity with it um but you know you're essentially giving it away for free you're ba- basically you sell it to netflix how
0: does that model work i've always wondered so you You go to Netflix, you're selling them the film. Is it for a a specific period of time, a few months, a year? Yes,
1: it all depends, and it depends in, again, this echoes some of the stuff we were talking earlier. depends if you're self-distributing. It depends if you're with a distributor. Some distributors have already deals in place with Netflix. We there's some distributors that aren't with Netflix, they're with Amazon. Yeah. Sometimes it's a two-year period, sometimes it's a five-year period. Netflix, meanwhile, has changed a lot in the last few months. As everybody knows, Netflix has started to want to do more original programming. A year ago, if if you made a movie on and you had a video camera and you made a movie on your dog, okay? there was a good chance netflix might might take it. They their their mandate was we want to be the world's world's video store. We want to have everything. That was a year ago. It's totally changed. So, things are already really different in that in that um, in that zone. Yeah. Um, now I would say they don't want everything. They want stuff that's going to appeal to their customers. They want stuff that are that are, that are known and it still creates a lot of challenges. In my case, um, my movie, that my newest documentary, Magical Universe, was released by IFC. IFC has a deal with Netflix, and then immediately just sort of puts uh, it out. Sort of
0: like uh, like how HBO is deals with some studios. Is it sort of how IFC works with Netflix? Yes,
1: and I think that's the case with most indie indie distributors. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you're, you're always sort of figuring out, well, how do I, how do we get it to iTunes? How do we get it on VOD? How do you get your movie out? And, yeah, of course, look, it, it's, you know, it's sexy if you're Christopher Nolan and you don't have these problems, but... 99% of the filmmakers who are making movies today are have these problems. Yeah. And these are problems where you're making a movie, you're cha- you're challenged with budgets, you want to find an audience and you want to figure out ways to put it out. Um and not every movie is is a is a blockbuster. You know, there's a world of of interesting movies out there, you know, um where that that aren't the the weekend studio releases and you know you have to figure out ways to if you're a filmmaker to get it out or if also in my case if you're making if you're marketing
0: how to put these movies out so for magical universe you started working on this about 2000 2001
1: yeah so magical universe is um is this it's really sort of unique and that's both good and bad you know i'm you know, I say that in the most modest sort of way, like it's unique in a difficult way too. I basically, um, I met a very strange, unique outsider artist who is an elderly guy living alone, reclusive in Maine. And I met him really randomly in just, um, just this kind of happenstance way. And I became friends with him and I started filming our friendship. So here I was in New York City, you know, running around this film guy. And here's this 88-year-old weird artist in Maine who, by the way, all his art deals with Barbie dolls. um, And he's living in this small town in Maine um, in this giant house. And for years and years, we had this friendship that I would film and I would go visit him and I would bring my camera. And it kind of is this sort of, it's hard to explain. It's kind of this home movie documentary where you think it's this kind of mo- this profile of this weird artist, and then it morphs into this story about friendship. And through this friendship that the artist, his name is Al Carby, through the friendship that Al has with me and my girlfriend, all this sort of amazing stuff starts happening for him. And and by the time he's like in his late eighties, early nineties. He's suddenly, like, coming out to the world in a way that he never had.
0: Yeah. What I noticed in the film is that, you know, he's living this very reclusive life, and he's creating all of this art in isolation. So it's just fascinating how much he accumulated over the years, because, I mean, when in the, in the sort of the small-town culture, it's sort of looked down upon to be an artist or to be, you know, sort of be creative. So he just did all of this on his own. And, you know, as he says in the film, he, you know, you constantly re- reiterate... He needs to be creative. Yes. He has a desire to be creative. Yes. And he just keeps making. All yeah, this, this stuff. is a, so his house is almost all artwork. Yes, right. Yeah. So
1: it, uh, it's a really unique story. It's this man that was living in this small town in Maine, and Maine is this really you know interesting place too that I've spent a lot of time in. But it's a it's kind of off the grid, and where he lived was kind of off the grid. And here here's this guy in his late 80s who's filled this giant house, a four-story house that he's kind of built and rebuilt and put on extra rooms and he's filled it up with his own art. And all he's doing day after day after day is creating art. And the art is what he kind of has access to. So you look at it, you're like, this is so weird. Um, he's making art. He's making Barbie doll collages. He makes Barbie doll dioramas. He takes photographs of Barbie dolls. He then takes those photographs and kind of creates collages. And it's this sort of portrait of this, you know, what would be called. He'd be classified as an outsider artist. It's sort of a, a kind of, you know, it's a it's a it's a it's a kind of classification. You know, the artist who doesn't really have any training. Sometimes they're. um you know, mentally ill artists that are yeah. sometimes classified in that way, and he's kind of in that in that category. Um, so for years, he was just a friend of ours, and we had this very odd relationship where we would send him money, we would go visit him, we would show, we would send video letters to each other. I mean, one a, a big component of the movie is. I, me and my girlfriend Astrid would send him video letters and then he and this is a man, like I said in his late 80s who, who rarely left his house he like decided to go to the Salvation Army or the Goodwill in his town and he bought some crappy video camera so he starts making videos he had never made videos before, <laughs> he starts making videos to send to us yeah. and then it, it's this kind of odd kind of pen pal movie where these two people are exchanging video letters and they, they're completely two different people and how this sort of friendship is evolving. Meanwhile, it's this portrait of this artist who, as, as you said, just is making just art 24-7. I mean, literally 24-7. The guy would wake up, he wakes up, makes art. All day, every day, yeah. goes to sleep, makes art. You know what I mean? It's just nonstop. So... um, Originally that was not, you know, there's been jo- there's been things that I've worked on where it's like, okay, we're in production on a documentary. You know, I've also done some like ESPN 30 for thirties, you know. You're in production, here's the budget, here's the money, you know, you're in there's production. A schedule. It's yeah, yeah exactly. It's end exactly. At a time. This was not that. This was very different. This was almost like an anti-movie where it wasn't ever even planned to be a movie. So the fact that it became something that then I was able to sculpt into a movie and then um, get out there was really, you know... But it
0: started with a short film, which you had within the film.
1: Yes, so the movie... you know, it's it, the movie is. Uh, I guess you would say that it does a lot of those kind of breaking the wall. It kind of messes with the form a little bit. It's self reflexive. I'm in it. I'm in it a lot. You so, narrate it. Well. I narrate yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> so if like if you uh, if anyone listening to this is already sick of, me, of hearing me natter on, they may not. Uh, they may not like the movie so much. But um, yeah. So it, it that came out of the fact that. The guy's art, Al Carby's art, was so unique and every style was in his art. You know, he is, his art is self-reflexive. His art is about himself. He puts himself in his photographs. Yeah, it's about Barbie, but it's also got this sort of very interesting sort of style. So I thought it was really important to convey that in the movie. And if anything, I would say that He is his art is the art of collage, and this is a documentary that's almost like a living collage. So it has all these different styles. Um, you know, it used 12, 13 different cameras because again I was shooting it all during these years so I wasn't thinking about like oh we have to make sure we're using you know Being this consistent. Ca- so, right yeah. you know or we got to be consistent on this aspect ratio and let's make sure it was never that approach it was like okay this is this odd movie that's like this kind of collage experience and i'm going to try to capture that overall so it uses all these different cameras all these different styles um, there's animation in it, there's still photos, there's a first person narrator, it flips, it does all this kind of, you know, self-reflexive stuff. Yeah. Um, so it was not a movie that I thought would even get out much. Um, and then it started to kind of do the fest- film festival route and it started to do really well on there on the film festival circuit, went a bunch awards and it was eventually picked up. Um, out of a great film festival called Doc NYC, which is a, a kind of a really great documentary film festival in New York that Tom Powers runs, it was picked up out of there from, from an IFC picked it up, acquired it, and it was released. And now it's coming out on whom uh, you know Netflix and DVD on, on May
0: twelfth. Yeah, uh, what's interesting is uh, I mean you worked on this for so many years. Mm-hmm. Did the way you saw the finished product evolve over time? Did you ever have sort of a written document saying? hey this is sort of how i see it progressing and even writing out your narration
1: yeah i mean what you know it was one of these things where it evolved into a movie so for the for for several uh for a long period and i again we're talking years this was not a project that i was pursuing this was this was just something I was filming almost like home movies. That was something that I wanted to film because he was a friend of mine. You know, he's my friend is this 88-year-old artist in Maine. I'm filming this because it's interesting. So it was always more of that approach as opposed to trying to turn it into a movie. However, I made a short film and the short, and I, and, and I, even the short film had very low um, expectations. Like I wasn't trying to get it out or use it as a calling card. I just was like, this is so weird. This guy, is so weird <laughs> and strange, and this is so interesting. Let me make a short film. What happened is after I, that short film was made, all this kind of magical stuff happens again from having them making the short film. So then I started to realize okay, that's really what this story is about. It's about how it's not just another profile of a a strange artist, but it's actually this different kind of story with a lot of texture and a lot of layers where it's this guy and it's this relationship and how the two sort of impact each other. um, How Al's Al as an artist and Al as a friend became these things that are sort of impacting this overall big story. And, you know, it it was amazing. You know, all this sort of beautiful stuff happens in the movie as a result of our friendship. And that became something that I I wanted to share. And so that was like, okay, let's now turn this into a doc.
0: Um,
1: And it was different from other documentaries that I had done. And the style was different. I'm I don't think I would do another documentary that I would be in. You know, this was that the kind of movie that called for it. You know, I'm yeah. in,
0: I mean, you were part of the story.
1: I was so. part of the story exactly. Yeah. I'm in production on a couple new documentaries now. I don't plan to put myself into wow. either of those. You what know? are you uh, working on right now? The one that I'm most excited about. That's kind of also another unique portrait. And this is people would probably hear this and be like, "That sounds so boring." Um, but let's let's try it out here. So. <laughs> My friend Matt is in his early 30s. He um, quit his job, sold his possessions, gave up basically his apartment in New York City so that he could spend the next five years walking every single street of New York City. In all five boroughs, it amounts to about 8,000 miles. And he basically, his life is devoted to walking every single street in New York. And it's a way for him to understand his world, better understand himself, understand the people he lives with. He's not doing it as a race. He's not doing it to write a book. He's doing it because he believes very strongly that you should, that the act of doing something is, is worth it. And he's decided that's what he's doing. So I've been filming him, and it's sort of shaping up to be a really interesting, again, small doc um, that, you know, has a little some... It, it sort of feels a little like, um, I don't know, like a, maybe like a Thoreau kind of Walden Pond, kind of into the wild for New York City kind of yeah. thing. It's neat. I really like it. Again, it could be incredibly boring, but we'll we'll hopefully try to make it so that it... Uh, it's pretty it's
0: pretty interesting so you constantly balance between your company wheelhouse and also making your own personal exactly to the side. exactly
1: so so um you know and this kind of cuts back to what we were talking at the beginning which is you know I, I feel like I've made some what I'm really happy with but they're definitely um, Unique choices for my career. You know, I have this company in New York City. We work on all kinds of movies. We work on trailers. We we shoot. We produce. We work on big docs. And meanwhile, I try to make um, smaller docs that are really these kind of where I could really throw myself in and um, treat as, you know, labor of loves. I think that's something that is important to me um, and that's something that I try to do. Um, and yeah, I have other bigger projects that are in the different, different uh, you know shapes and different levels on the timeline, and some are bigger and sexier yeah. projects. But the ones that really sort of get me excited are these sort of smaller ones that I'm sort of
0: more involved on. on have you ever every thought level. about making a narrative film? Just with actors and yes, um, more.
1: I've done I've done some narrative shorts and and um, you know like a lot of people that you'd meet out in in Los Angeles. I have narrative projects at different stages of development. I have scripts that are in development. I have um, you know I thought um, with Magical Universe, um, I was pursuing a narrative project for quite a long time that at one point was greenlit and it was a um it's a thriller set um it's like sort of a women in jeopardy thriller but like a good one right um not just some crappy one but like a good kind of cool indie thriller and it is taking so long you know one of the one of the challenges of trying to make narrative films is it takes so long you know and you're constantly you're you're spending a lot of time you know going on meetings and going to lunches and you know, waiting for responses that it is can be challenging if you want to make movies because you have to sort of say like, okay, the movie making, uh, this lunch that I'm going on is part of making the movie.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, and you have to sort
0: of be, you have to okay. accept that as part of the process. Exactly. As opposed to fighting it. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So um, in many ways, a lot of times my response to the wait is okay. Well, I'm going to keep making my small movies and they're my small documentaries and that's sort of been what I've been doing yeah. so uh, yeah continue that but yeah I also have these paths where I'm involved in narrative projects as well
0: cool so Magical Universe is May May 12th May 12th it is it should
1: be back on VOD iTunes DVD and of course, Netflix, and that um, it was in—you know—it played in a lot of cities for a Doc. It played in about twenty cities, and now it's sort of in its in its—it's it's actually right this second. You can't even see it. It's you know the uh, the distributor IFC Films is still still has that kind of old dated model where it's like they put it in theaters, yeah. then they remove it from theaters, and now it's in its dark period, and you can't even see it, and then it's going to come back for on, in home entertainment in May 12th. So May 12th is the day. Circle it on your calendar. <laughs> if you want to see a very unique, uh, interesting movie, Magical
0: Universe. Awesome. I mean, do you have a website at all? I do. dot
1: MagicalUniverseFilm.com. And, um, you, um, I think it could also be found on, you know, the IFC page. And if people want to also see the work that we do, my trailer work, that's wheelhousecreative.com. Um, and if there's indie filmmakers out there that are listening to your podcast that have a movie and they're trying to figure out what to do with trailers, totally. They can reach out to me. Um, you know, we try to be a real sort of resource for indie filmmakers, a lot of times indie filmmakers come to us and they're just like, we don't, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know how to do trailers. It seems to cost a lot of money and we don't, we don't know what we're doing. So um, that's constantly something that we're dealing with where, you know, it's, a film, it's an indie filmmaker and they're trying to make their, get their movie out and they don't really know how to do, do trailers. So we're always trying to sort of figure out how to kind of you know, ease that process a little bit.